it went straight down the middle. Then it started to... You had a chance to win uh, a little uh, team deal, I guess, in 2000, Bruce. He did. That was uh, the CVS Charity Classic, was it? Is that... Yeah, yeah, that was uh, Brad Fax and Billy Andre's event. Um, I think it was maybe with Davis. I think Davis and I were partners there for a few years. And, uh, you know, just a fun two-day deal. It's all for, you know, not all for charity, but mostly for charity. And and I played it for a number of years. Um, Those guys did a great job, raised a bunch of money for, you know, a lot of great charities up in New England. And and, uh, I think Davis and I, yeah, we prevailed that year. You beat beat a couple of characters too, right? You remember (laughs) who you beat? I don't remember who we beat. (laughs) Elky and Steads. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun – those deals were always a fun couple of days where you're just, you know – I remember the format. I, if it was a scramble or a best ball or something, but, uh, yeah, those were fun. Well, it must have been fun for you to win the 2000 Texas Open. It was. It was there at La Quintera. Um, uh, you know, the Texas Open's always – kind of had a special place in my career. Uh, I mentioned earlier about kind of locked up my tour card there in 94. Uh, the next year, I think I finished second to just get into the tour championship. Um, and, um, you know, then uh, to go on and, and win there, I think that, that was the first time that I won there at La Quintera. But, um, uh, you know, always nice to, to kind of, be close to home and be able to drive down to San Antonio and play and, and even more fun when you go down and play well. Yeah. Yeah. You went low there, 19 under with some sporty rounds. Uh, uh, and then, and then back to back the following year, you come back and, and win there again, this time, instead of uh, by five over Mr. Weeby, it was uh, by two over JJ Henry and Matt Kuchar. Yeah. And I think uh, that was one of those years Joe LaCava caddied for me. I was kind of in between caddies and, and, uh, uh Joe, uh, I, I gave Joe a call and he said, well, cause I'd won the year before. He said, well, can you win this thing again? And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I can. Of course I, can. You know, I don't know if I will, but I can, I think I might've told him I will. Um, at least it was funny. <laughs> it was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, his son is now caddying a little bit. He reminded me of that story. And, uh, um, so anyways, I guess I guaranteed Joe a win and we got it. So it was fun. Yeah. You must've liked that golf course. Uh, then you come back, uh, and win the heritage the following year, 2002 of course, that's close to home here where I'm at, uh, at Hilton Head Island at Harbor town. And, uh, Bruce, I've got to say for anybody that wins the heritage and, and wins on that golf course, they can play. Yes. It's a great golf course. Great strikers golf course, Justin, don't you think? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's claustrophobic, um, you know, off the tee, the greens are tiny. Um, it, it really does. You have to shape the ball both directions, I think, to play well there. And, and uh, my wife and I got married in February of 2002. So that was, you know, her first time to see me win. Um, and, uh, you know, always fun there especially coming off the masters. There's such buildup towards the masters and, and that week is, you know, can be a very long and taxing week. And then to be able to go 
just drive three hours and, and you feel like you're, you're on a little bit of like spring break after final exams, uh, being in Hilton Head. So, um, I didn't contend there as much as I thought I would over the years, but it was nice to, to at least get a victory there at some point. You go to the Honda in 2003 and win the Honda Classic. Of course, that was sandwiched by a couple of uh, close calls at majors because you had uh, you had some real chances again at the PGA Championship, both in uh, 2002 and 2004. The 2002 one was at Hazeltine. The 2004 was uh, was at Whistling Straits. Yeah, 0-2 at Hazeltine. I, I think I had a three-shot lead going the last day and over Rich Beam, and I just – I just didn't play very well that day. Um, Rich played great golf and never, I never really felt like I, I was never comfortable with my game or anything that day. Um, and then fast forward a couple years, Oh four to me, that's the one that really got away. Um, playing whistling straights. Um, you know, I had a one shot lead playing the 72nd hole, uh, hit a good drive, if you remember that, that green is, it's almost a bit like a clover shape. And, and, um, the pin was kind of over on the left. I hit a five iron and right at the middle of the green, I kind of I hit the shot I wanted to, and it just didn't carry this little indention in that, that kind of went into the green that way. And, and, um, I didn't hit a very good chip, you know, or, or putt and, uh, and then ended up losing that playoff. But, uh, I felt like, if that five iron, if I'd hit it at the flag, it would have certainly carried the front edge of the green, and, and um, I probably would have won a PGA Championship. So that 04, 02, like I just didn't play well at all that Sunday, but but 04, you know, that's the one that that really got away. Yeah. That win in 2005 is probably familiar, Bruce. You know that place, don't you? Or ben places? Hogan, Bob Hope Classic at Palm Springs. You, you beat uh, Tim Clark and Joe Ogilvie by three shots. Yeah, I, I always enjoyed going to the desert. I mean, especially early in the year in January, the weather's so good. And, you know, back in that time, we were playing five days on four different golf courses. And, um, right. you know, I, I – while I wanted to play well, I, I kind of looked at it as a great way to kind of get my game, see where my game was going into the season. Uh, I didn't always play in Hawaii and those things. So um, always enjoyed being in the desert. And, um, you know, I, I I tended – I always felt like I played better on, on more difficult golf courses where putting the ball in the fairway and things like that were more important. But um, some reason, it, it you know, certain times – um, I could string a few low rounds together and certainly when given good greens and conditions like that, cause they're always perfect in Palm Springs. Um, yeah. you know, I, I look forward to it. The golf courses weren't very long. Um, I, I didn't feel like a player of my length was at any kind of disadvantage. So, um, you know, always went out there in, in pretty good, uh, a pretty good mindset. Well, Justin, I know our listeners are anxious to have us get to some of your team play experience. I don't want to uh, uh, short your your personal career in terms of other wins. I will skip over a few uh, and mention them, but uh, I know Bruce is going to have a question for you as well. Yeah, but you, you went on to, to win uh, uh, the FedEx St. Jude. You won that in 2005, but you also came back and won that in 2008. In between, a third Texas Open, uh, again at La Cantera, this one in a playoff with Jester Parnovic. Uh, but the, the St. Jude one, 2008 was your final tour victory. I think what Bruce is going to want to ask you about is more about your playoff record. Yes. 
I'm not sure if you're aware, Justin, but we have uh, we've we've now had 74 interviews with all the great players, both men and women, right? Do you have you any idea what their percentage of uh, playoff victories are? Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? I don't know, but I guarantee you it's at least uh, 30 or 40% higher than my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, your playoff victories uh, are only two is against five losses, but... Right. Of all of these great players that we've talked to, they have a playoff record of 0.43. They do not win half the playoffs that they were in, which is quite remarkable, I think, when you think about it. That you, it is. You know, all the greatest players in the world uh, have a losing record uh, in the playoffs. Quite, quite amazing. Yeah, that is surprising. Kathy Whitworth, as an example, 8 and 20. Wow. I think that about amazing. that. That's a lot of playoffs. My goodness. Yeah. 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 So we were kind of surprised to see the stats as they were. The women are just ahead of the men, but 43%. Right. I suppose if you adjust for uh, uh, the the playoffs that you're in with, with more than two people, yeah, maybe it just, I think it just works out to a coin flip. Right. Right. Yeah. I, you know, two majors and, and, and playoffs and then, um, I remember being in the playoff at uh, it was at St. Jude against Robert Allenby and Trevor Immelman. Correct. Um, and uh, I think Trevor, if I remember right, that was 2008. Trevor just won the Masters that spring. And um, I hadn't, I think up to that point, I had not won a playoff. I think I was 0 for 5 at that point. And oh, okay. – I made a I made birdie on our second playoff hole, the little par three eleventh. Trevor still had about a, a fifteen footer or so, and uh, Robert and I stand on the back of the green, and and I I told him I said you know I've never won a playoff before. I don't know if it's going to happen here, but at least I give myself a chance. And he said he'd never lost a playoff. He was like six and zero or seven and zero or something, and that included you know some European tour events and Australian right. Opens and all that, but. Uh, anyway, so I finally got off the schneid. And then, as you mentioned, I, I won that playoff as well in San Antonio. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go on to the Ryder Cup if we can. Uh, we, we talked about you qualifying uh, for your first Ryder Cup in 97 at Valderrama. Of course, that was the one that Seve was the captain of the European side. And it, it almost just seemed with him in the in the in the captain's seat that it was sort of destined i don't know uh, what you're feeling about that is because you were in the heat of battle i know you guys were trying to win every match but uh uh you know history will certainly uh, 
uh, reflect that it, it was seemed to be Seve's time as a as a leader of that team that year. But uh, just tell us a little bit about your reflections of your first Ryder Cup. Yeah, ninety seven. It was Tiger's first Ryder Cup. Um, you know, we were the two young guys on the team. It was Jim Furyk's first. Um, and then a great, you know, veterans like Brad Faxon and Davis Love and Scott Hoke and, and Freddie Couples and those guys. Um, it was fun. But, yeah, we were certainly up against it. I mean, playing in Spain, uh, Seve being the captain, um, uh, you know, the whole week we had, to, we had rain again that week. We had a couple of delays and things like that. Um, and, um, you know, I think they probably had an advantage over us with the golf course. It's kind of a – Valderrama is a, quid, a bit of a quirky golf course. It is. Um, a lot of dog legs, a lot of these cork trees, which look a lot like live oaks, uh, kind of smaller live oaks, but very much in play. And you could hit a ball, you know, where you think, oh, this is perfect in the fairway, and you could be completely blocked out. So um, – and I think they had – certainly had the advantage on the experience on playing that golf course – um, and then with Seve being Seve, I mean, he was everywhere that week. And, and, uh, I think in the end it was, you know, we got it, you know, close, but, uh, um, that was, that was going to be a tough, a tough road against those guys that week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's go to more fonder memories, which is your next Ryder cup. And that came the, at the, in the next one, which was the 1999 Ryder cup at the country club at Brookline. You ever get a chance to talk about this one much? <laughs> I do. I, I've gotten to revisit it every couple years at NBC, and uh, and then last year during the U.S. Open, um, able to you know it's fun. I was I was out doing my course prep on on Wednesday before the U.S. Open, and and I was walking up the 17th, and and um, uh, I was walking with and sometimes you know I like to if I find a group maybe with some caddies or players that I'm friendly with. Uh, I'll just kind of follow them for a few holes. And so, you know, it was Justin Thomas and Scotty Scheffler and, and uh, you know, a couple other guys. And so I walk up on the green. I kind of have my nose in my book. I walk up in the green and and um, Scotty hands me his putter and JT <laughs> throws down a ball and Bones is back there on the back of the green. And he throws down one of those little rubber cups and they're like, hey, show us the putt. So I, you know, I, I did it, hit the putt and everything. So. So that was good fun. Um, you know, I've had to, our producer, Tommy Royce, forced me to bring the Ryder Cup shirt a couple times to Ryder Cups into the U.S. Open. And, and uh, I'm going to tell him it's, you know, it got lost in the move. I'm going to stop bringing that with me to, I'm going <laughs> to, uh, you know, <laughs> if, if, I, if I do any TV events. So, um, but uh, yeah, great memories. And, and um, uh, you know, the first part of the week, um, we just simply got outplayed. It seemed like Jesper Parnovic and Sergio Garcia were, were unbeatable. And, you know, Colin Montgomery played great. Paul Laurie had a great week. Um, you know, and I think that uh, certainly they just kept momentum on their side. And then, um, you know, on Sunday we're able to turn it around and get a lot of momentum early on uh, in the matches and, and uh, not just little one-up leads, but they were, you know, guys were two and three up after four and five holes. And um, Mark James, European captain, uh, had three players that he hadn't played in the team matches. And they all went out very early in the singles matches, uh, like all three of them in the first five matches. And so 
um, we had to front end, front load our lineup and, and try and get some momentum going. And we did that and it, you know, it just, it worked out beautifully. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get to Sunday. Let's just set it up for our listeners a little bit because, uh, you know, you've got, you've got Ben Crenshaw, as, as Justin mentioned, a noted golf historian is probably an understatement. Uh, the captain of the U S side, uh, he had an early trip as a, as a, as a young man with his father to Brookline. And he said that was, he told us in his interview, that was probably the time when I really did get interested in the history of the game. And of course you remember, uh, the young man that grew up across from the 17th hole, Francis Wilmette as a young kid, caddies there. He goes on to win as an amateur, the, the 1913 U S open beating Harry Varden and Ted Ray. So there's a lot of famous history there. Uh, there's history there from 2000, from, from 1913 to the, to the, the year of this is Ryder cup, which I won't go through, but, but it just, there was a lot of importance there. And uh, you know, as you got into the, the, the Saturday night speech of Ben, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into that. But uh, uh, I want to, I want to uh, uh, just ask you a little bit about, uh, about Saturday because in the four ball, you were playing on Saturday afternoon with uh, with uh, this fella. And back so we squared the match up to right even, there. Baby. To even, and of course, we got the tee going into 17. And both of us drove it right down the middle of the fairway. And, I, you know, Olathobo hits it way right. And, I mean, uh, uh, Jimenez does. And Olathobo hits this kind of snappy hook out there. And they're both in the rough. And so Justin running off the tee, and I'm hollering at Justin, Justin, just a minute, just a minute. And I had to run up there to catch him. He won't stop, you know. And I run up there, and I said, hey, look, man. I said, I just, I see the stage set. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, you're one of the best wedge players in the world. Pump him up. (laughs) I said, game on. This is your hole right here. Best wedge player in the world. I was a day off. The next day was, (laughs) the stage was set for the next day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the 17. You remember any of that? Uh, that's pretty funny. I, I do, yeah. Getting to play with Hal, um, that was something else. And uh, he got it, made a great up and down at 18 from the front bunker, um, you know, in that match. Um, yeah, it was fun. You know, I played uh, – I got to play with Payne Stewart uh, that week in a match. Um, but, yeah, I mean, playing with Hal um, – he was great. I mean, he was, uh, he was a playing captain, um, because of, you know, conversations like that. Um, just a great teammate, fun to be around. So let's, let's kind of set it up for Sunday. Uh, of course you mentioned you guys didn't play great early. I think you were down what, 10, six or so going into the last six, day. Yes. Yeah. 10, yeah, six on the last day. So, you know, you mentioned that the the captain decides to front end the lineup, which he did. He opens up with Lehman, Sutton, Mickelson, Love, Woods, and Duvall right out of the box. But take us back to Saturday night. Uh, we understand uh, 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 George W. might have made an appearance uh, reading a little story about the Alamo. Of course, Ben uh, knew President Bush at the time, maybe Governor Bush, uh, quite well. Uh, yep. Ben, of course, uh, uh, his famous quote uh, as part of that uh, speech. Tell us a little bit about that. Just take us into the room that Saturday night. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think we were licking our wounds a bit on Saturday night. And until we, you know, 
we kind of had our strategy set in place before the players left the golf course. Um, and then, you know, once we kind of said, okay, here's our order, um, then we all went back to the hotel and Ben still had to do the, you know, the pairings reveal and then he had to do his press. And so we were actually at the hotel when Ben was giving, you know, was in the media room and, and we saw the pairings. We thought, okay, this might, you know, look somewhat doable. And, and, um, and then, you know, Ben and his famous words, he was kind of tired of taking questions. Uh, and, uh, he said, listen, I, you know, I've got one more thing to say and I've got a good feeling about this and that's, I'm just going to leave you with that. Um, kind of thought he was nuts at the time. Um, <laughs> but looking back, he, he knew what he was talking about. I mean, Ben's very like touchy feely. It's in the, it's in the clouds and the trees and the stars. Um, yeah. he understood better than anybody, uh, the significance of what Francis Wemet accomplished there. The fact that, you know, the putt that I made was on the 17th green. Um, you know, Ben's the one who calls me Francis. Um, right. Of course, he also named his cat Francis. So, <laughs> so um, you and the cat. <laughs> I, me and the cat. Um, but it's, um, you know, and then knowing certainly more about the history and what happened there. And, and uh, um, you know, it's just, it's funny how history can tend to repeat itself. Um and it certainly did from 1913 all the way to, to 1999. Yeah, so the day opens up. Uh, I mentioned that opening lineup. It goes win, 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 win for the U.S. So you've really built some momentum now. And uh, and now it's starting to get exciting. And uh, uh, and then, of course, this happens. And lo and behold, he Francis made a putt on the 17th green there. Of course, that was the 71st hole of the tournament. And then they got in a playoff, and then he made another putt on that green, number 17, and his house was right across the street from the property. And I, the whole story was captivating. So I kept that. I knew the Francis we met story forever. And lo and behold, later on, I became named as captain of the Ryder Cup at Brookline and probably the most improbable putt that I have ever seen go down was Justin Leonard's putt on the 17th green. Now, there's something very spooky about that. Uh, It was absolutely spooky. Uh, And we... We were rightly so, rightly called out for, it was kind of unsportsmanlike. It really was. We shouldn't have done, we shouldn't have celebrated that, but nobody in the world would have expected Justin Leonard to make that putt. But wasn't that spooky that that's Francis's green? So from then on, I called Justin Francis. (laughs) And I, he always gives me that funny look, and I said, "You did it." Uh, I, it was it was surreal, just surreal. I was I was kneeling on the back of that green with Dave Anderson from the New York Times. Uh, we kneeled together, and Justin made that putt. And I looked at Dave, and I said, "That's Francis," and he just started <laughs> laughing. It was just amazing. 
<laughs> what a week. What a week that was. Of course, that was the captain, Ben Crenshaw. Uh, all hell broke loose when you made that putt. It did. And I, I remember seeing, you know, watching the, the coverage. And as soon as I make the putt, Ben, who's on the, you know, just over the green, um, he bends down and kisses the green three times. Um, Cause he knew, uh, he knew the history and what had happened there and he couldn't believe that it happened there again. Um, so yeah, a little chaos broke out. Um, you know, nobody got near Jose Maria's line, but it certainly added to, you know, some of the delays and trying to make a putt after all that, um, you know, can't imagine trying to do that. Yeah. Well, it was hard to blame the crowd and the players for the excitement that they felt in the moment, just given the circumstance. Uh, but, uh, one of the, one of the more famous Ryder Cup uh, wins for the U.S. that'll go down in history, and and uh, you played a big part in that one. That had to be quite a thrill. It was a thrill. Um, I, you know, I hear about, you know, of all the things that I've been able to accomplish, ninety five percent of them go back to that that Ryder Cup in ninety nine, and people remember exactly where they were, who they were watching with, and and all of that. You know, when you golf is such an individual sport that when you give, you know, people don't really have a rooting interest unless it's, you know, their favorite player or somebody they looked up to, or maybe they're from the same hometown, those kind of things. But then when you get into a team atmosphere, like a Ryder cup where people have a, a rooting interest, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people just tend to pay more attention. And, um, you know, when they're able to root for a team like that, you know, it's the reason the NFL and the NBA and the Major League Baseball is so popular. Um, people have rooting interests. And when you give them rooting interest in a sport like golf, uh, some some crazy things can happen. So you had one other win in you as a Ryder Cup player. That was uh, the 2008 win at Valhalla where you got the chance to play under the pod uh, concept with uh, Paul Azinger. Uh, as captain Nick Faldo was the opposing captain, so so two and one in Ryder Cup, not bad. Uh, you did pretty well in uh, in President's Cup play as well. And uh, listen to these captains you had a chance to play with uh, and against: Arnold Palmer, Peter Thompson, Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, uh, just to name a few. Uh, uh, you had a chance to play on, I think, uh, uh, five President's Cups teams from uh, starting with your first one, 1996, uh, and finishing up with your last one at Harding Park, playing for Fred Couples in 2009. Yeah, I got to play with some some great captains, had some great teammates. Um, I think, you know, I, I made those two Ryder Cups. I made three or four Presidents Cups in there. And, and then I just kind of thought, you know, at that point, I was going to be on every team. And then all of a sudden, it didn't happen for a few years. Uh, I think I was on the team in 05, a President's Cup team. I'd missed a couple Ryder Cups. Uh, and then 08 was the first team that I had made, the first Ryder Cup since 99. I actually really enjoyed the 08 Ryder Cup team more than I did anything else because I had a greater appreciation for being there. I think I took it a bit for granted there in the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, I smiled that entire week in 2008. And it's probably the best golf that I played in any team competition. Uh, because I wasn't, it wasn't all about how I played. I wanted to enjoy the whole experience of it. And, um, 
played really well that week. I played with Hunter Mahan. As you mentioned, I was in a pod with Anthony Kim and Phil Mickelson. So spent a lot of time around those guys. But um, that 08 team was, was really fun to be a part of. And then able to make the Presidents Cup the next year, play for Fred Couples in 09. And I had a good week that week as well. So, um, you know, it's amazing what happens when you, you kind of st- take a step back from something and then you, uh, you approach it with more gratitude, uh, how much more you can enjoy it. Get to do it again. And then you, you played in the Dunhill Cup in 97 and the World Cup in 97 and 2003. Yeah, that was uh, – I was actually – Freddie and Davis were on a run. They'd won like three or four World Cups in a row, and and Freddie couldn't make it that week. And so I got called in for – you know, to relieve him, and, and uh, it was fun. Playing with Davis um, – uh, you know, and I played another uh, event with with Jim Furyk there, which was a lot of fun as well. So, um, Key was a great venue. You know, those those World Cups and things like that are you know kind of like the the cherry on top of a, of a career when you get to you know play a little team competition. Certainly, there's not as much is not serious as a Ryder Cup or Presidents Cup, but still, those are great events to be a part of. So you mentioned earlier in our talk that uh, you were up in the booth having a sort of a taste of broadcasting, being able to listen to the producer in your ear. Uh, when did you really sort of get that bug and think, hey, maybe post-career I might want to try this? Yeah, it was twenty, really 2015. Um, I had a couple conversations with uh, Joe Ogilvie had done some work with Fox, and then Steve Sands, who works for NBC and Golf Channel, was at an event, charity event that I was playing, and I I kind of bent his here for, for a couple of hours. Um, that led to a couple of phone calls that summer in 15. And, and um, I ended up meeting our, the lead, the head producer for NBC Sports uh, or NBC Golf, Tommy Roy. We both flew to Dallas and I just moved to Colorado. We both flew to Dallas and just grabbed a meeting room in the airport and spent about three hours just talking about what, you know, what being a, a TV analyst looks like. Um, so he invited me to come to the BMW a couple of weeks later, not to be on air, just to just to take a look around for a couple of days. Um, and then he asked me to come do uh, the Hero World Challenge down in the Bahamas in December. Uh, so that was my first event. Um, I literally I thought I did a terrible job. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but I made it through four days and he asked me if I could do a few events the following year. So. 2016, I did four or five events while I was still playing a, a light schedule on tour. Um, and so kind of going back and forth. And then uh, once I got to the end of the season in, in 2016, in, in August, didn't make it in the playoffs. And, you know, I could have I could have kept playing and trying to get sponsors exemptions and, and maybe go through, you know, requalifying those things like that. But I just felt like it was a good time to step away. And, and I had a uh, you know, a doorway that I could walk through and, and, um, I decided to go through it. And that's when I went in and shaved my, my, you know, ski bum beard that I had there for about a year and a half and, (laughs) and, uh, you know, started doing television. Um, it was an interesting process. It's a very steep learning curve because there's a lot going on, um, in trying to analyze golf courses, not just for myself, but for, you know, uh, Bubba Watson and a Roy McIlroy, how are they going to approach things and play certain holes? And I never really tried to analyze other swings. And now all of a sudden that was part of my job. And so, um, 
it was an interesting process, but had a lot of good people that given me advice and, and it's a great team to be a part of. Um, and you know, I did all, I did studio work. I did the 18th tower. I was, you know, in an outer tower calling holes by myself and those things. And, um, you know, it's fun when you pull off a, a good, a good day and a good telecast and you have an exciting event finish and, and things go your way. It, it's very, very satisfying. So I don't know if, uh, if your experience matches those of our guests, including Bruce Devlin, by the way, who had an extensive broadcasting career, but we've talked to, and I'll forget a lot of them, but we've talked to Donna Capone and Judy Rankin and Dottie Pepper and Baker Finch and Strange and, and others who have had that same experience. And two things in common, Bruce. One, uh, you didn't necessarily get a lot of training. And no. two, you didn't necessarily get a lot of feedback. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. The, you know, I, I laughed when I, I, I read that when they were bringing Tony Romo into CBS that they called like three or four simulated games, he and Jim Nance. Um, mm. I thought that was – that sounded like a great idea. It, that was not – you know, they threw me in an outer tower in the Bahamas and said, here's what you push. Here's the talk button. Um, you know, here are your monitors. Um, have at it. And you just yeah. kind of got to go figure it out. There's not a lot of reps, you know, practice reps for, for golf telecasts. And feedback? Much? Good job, bad job, uh, you know, post-broadcast? Uh, I, I, got, I got a good bit of feedback um, from Tommy Roy, our head producer. Um, and most of it was negative to begin with. Um, and he would sprinkle in a little positive, you know, my timing or cadence and things like that. Or I, I guess it was – he said I was very good at the mechanics and understanding when to speak and when not to. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there were other things that, that I need to work on. And Bruce, as you know, like you have to be able to find a way to s- basically say the same thing but in 10 different ways. Um, yeah. You can't keep repeating the same thing over and over again because it's very right. easy to do that when you're talking about a five-foot putt. Um, yeah. But y- you have to be able to bring different things to it, understand when there's moments – you know, I was, I don't know about you. I was never paid by the word. And so I, if there were no. moments when I felt like the picture just need to speak for itself, that's what I let happen. And I got more and more comfortable with that, you know, as I continue to do it, uh, that I didn't need to speak all the time. Um, sometimes you right. just set up a shot and just let, let the picture speak for itself. So what a career, what a career Justin Leonard has had. And you know, Justin, <laughs> Mike mentioned it earlier. We we don't let our guests get away without answering three questions, okay? And if Mike doesn't mind, I'm going to ask the first one. Go right ahead. First one is, if when you turn pro, you knew then what you know now, what would you have done differently? Um. I, I wouldn't have stressed so much about the little things. I think in some ways it made me better and work harder, but I think it also, those little stresses add up over the years and 
is probably one of the reasons why I, I stepped away from it and didn't play for six years. Um, just needing to get away from it. And, um, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, being uh, somewhat of a perfectionist as I was certainly early on in my career, um, it served me in some senses, but it was also a bit of a detriment at times. And, um, uh, so I think I would just tell myself to, to, to be a little easier, show myself a little great, more grace more often. We're going to give you one career mulligan. Where do you take it? Oh, uh, as we mentioned, 2004 PGA Whistling Strait, 72nd hole. Just go with the hole. There's plenty of room. <laughs> Don't go at the middle of the green. <laughs> that was an easy one. That was an easy one. That was so, an easy one. Yeah, yeah. Last question. How would you like to be remembered? Oh, boy. Um, I'd like to be remembered just somebody who who treated people the right way, um, regardless of, of what I have accomplished or what I accomplished from here on out. Um, I'd like to be remembered as somebody that, um, you know, that treated people and did things the right way. Well, you did things the right way today. We do seriously appreciate you joining us today, Justin, on For the Good of the Game. And uh, we thank you for your time and for all your insights into an absolutely wonderful career, which well, isn't over you. yet. Thank you. It's not over yet. Start, yeah, I'm 50 trying. years old, playing some Champions Tour. I'm having fun competing again. Uh, but thank you. I've been looking forward to this and, and getting to chat with you guys for – for a few weeks now. And so I'm glad we're able to do it. Thank you for having me. Good. Thanks for spending time with us, Justin, and continued good luck uh, on your new senior career and also with your broadcasting. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle. Quiet away.